Hi, I'm Hera. And I'm Aisha. And we are the Mocha Single Mothers by Choice, or SMCs. Like you, as SMCs, we decided to become mothers knowing we'd be the sole care provider and parent of our children, at least at the outset. And the Mocha is for Black. We discuss being SMCs from an intentionally Black lens. You'll connect with all the interesting and fun things about this non-traditional path. Like how you decide which sperm to use, the cold, hard truth of fertility, your reality of dating as a single mother who doesn't have a co-parent to rely on for occasional childcare, and what it's actually like to parent as an SMC. This is the Mocha Single Mothers by Choice podcast. So hi, Pod. We are back from our spring break, and we're excited to get into this topic. So over the course of this season, we've been highlighting the different ways that our children find us. We discussed donor egg, and today we're discussing donor embryo. And we have a special guest host, a friend to the show, Abby. And I think I shared over one of the last two seasons that I considered every possible path to getting my second child. And at one point, I considered embryo donation. Abby was the person that I went to to kind of get the the download on all of the details, all of the ins and outs, what I could expect financially, what I can expect from a clinical perspective on the embryo donation side. So Abby, welcome to the show. She is an SMC and founder of Peaceful Parent Sleep Coaching. Abby, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Hi. I am a proud SMC of two kids, Kalipi, who's 10, and Amelie, who is seven. We um, left New York three and a half years ago and live in Mexico. And I now have a partner, a domestic partner that for the last two years, but I still very much identify with being an SMC because that was the first eight and a half years of motherhood for me. Once an SMC, always an SMC. (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, thank you for joining us today, Abby. So let's start from the beginning with what is embryo donation? Yeah, so I used IVF to create each of my children. I I did an IVF round for each of them, and I had four embryos left over from those two rounds of IVF. And they were frozen. And then at some point along the way, I, a friend of mine through another friend was interested in, in becoming a parent through frozen embryos. She didn't want to do IVF and our mutual friend connected us. And now she is the mother of a beautiful little boy who is from one of my embryos. That's awesome. So you, when you decided to donate your remaining embryos, did you discuss this with your family first uh, and your kids? Were your kids old enough to have this discussion? And what was their reaction? Oh, that is such a good question. I don't think I discussed it with them ahead of time. When I was thinking about it, uh, they were still pretty little. So he's four now and my oldest is 10. So probably when we were thinking about it, she was only four, mm-hmm. five, and, and Amelie would have been a baby. So no, it didn't occur to me actually to talk to them about it. So do they know donor siblings from the sperm donor? We have never met um, any of their donor half siblings. I only recently found out about their donor half siblings on Facebook 
maybe two summers ago and I showed them pictures and they were intrigued while well, my oldest was intrigued mm-hmm. and, and we were hoping to meet one of them last summer, but then it didn't work out because they were sick when we were in New York. Yeah. So they don't have any other donor sibling experience. I'm curious because I feel like I always think about the genetic testing component, right? And so like the, the offspring of the, of the embryos, like eventually doing the testing and then like connecting with family members and then the family members being like, wait, what? <laughs> like, Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's always interesting, right? Because I think as SMCs, we're so used to coming at it from the recipient perspective, right? So mm-hmm. I use the sperm donor. When I think of donor sibling relationships, I think of that third person, right? And it's just like, yeah, so this is how my kids are going to interact with this third person. This is how they're going to interact with their donor siblings, right? So it's something, it's an entity that's external to me. But now I am the donor, right? So now the shoe is on the other foot. Like, how will don't donor conceived children receive me? What will their expectations of me be? You know, what do I envision the relationship of the other donor conceived child to be with my children, right? So I think that there is this added level of, hmm, I need to think about that, you know, when I am now the donor. For some of us, it is a new kind of shift in thinking. Say before I had used a donor. I never considered being a donor. And I think that my view on that has certainly changed since using a donor. So now when considering what to do with embryos, it's like you put yourself in that, the shoes of like, well, I know, you know, I know that I'm super grateful that this person donated sperm to me. And if we kind of, if we kind of just reduce it to like, okay, a tissue donation, right. I think the challenge for me is the, the full sibling genetic sibling bond that your kids have with the embryo children. Yeah. And I'll say about that, you know, when I was thinking about embryo donation, I was really thinking about my relationship to the child. And then as soon as he was born and we do have a relationship with him, my kids know him. It became clear very quickly that, oh, this is not about me. This is about the kids and their relationship to each other. And he's only four. So who knows, maybe when he's an adult, like he'll want to have more of a relationship with me or he'll have questions specifically for me. But right now it really feels like it's about the kids, which I didn't anticipate. Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Okay. So let's talk about cost. I think one of the reasons her and I thought it was important to pull this episode together is because we have you know, in the past, and we're starting to see it in our space more and more that SMC is starting to be a bit more equal opportunity, that we will get these tiny sparks of clashes between expectations of people looking to receive donor embryos and people looking to donate embryos. And we've seen a a slight uptick in clashes with expectations. So people will be like, oh my gosh, they wanted my money. And it's just like, huh? Like, oh, she wanted to sell me her embryos. And it's just like, oh, no. And, you know, and I think when when I see that happen, I internally cringe because these are, there's emotions at play, right? And there's money at play. So it is a high stakes kind of conversation, whereas you could potentially turn off 
people that are well-intentioned on both sides because there is that level of not fully understanding what to expect. So can we talk a little bit about what to expect on a monetary side and on a legal and social work, psychological kind of side? So those three areas. Yeah. So I was never in that particular situation, but I would say, um, you know, so with my recipient, um, her name's Johanna, she and I have a shared background in that we both worked at the same Quaker summer camp a hundred years ago. (laughs) (laughs) And we have a close, a very close mutual friend from that, but we also have a shared background of Quaker values and many, many friends. So even though we weren't, we didn't keep in touch over, you know, two or three decades, we have a lot in common. So I'm very grateful that there was sort of some, I guess, unspoken expectations maybe, Mm -hmm. but I feel like for me as a donor, if somebody asked me for money, I'd be taken aback because if you think about the cost of going through IVF to create embryos, not just financial, but physical and emotional, Mm -hmm. it is a huge burden. And I mean, look, I feel so grateful that I was able to, to have that experience and to create my children. But I mean, I'm guessing each round of IVF was around Mm -hmm. $20,000 with my first round. I ended up hospitalized for two days as a result of the, of the fertility treatments. Emotionally, it was so, so, so hard. So to me, I'm offering a gift, you know, no strings attached, basically like I'd love, I wanted to have a relationship with the child, but that was it. But if someone said to me, like, if they asked me for money on top of that, I think that would be frankly, a big turnoff. Yeah. I think the way it happens isn't necessarily like when I was first going through just like what to do with the remaining embryos, I remember it was more that people would approach and they would have no idea, like they would not have done their research. And then when things started coming up, I just sort of felt like it was a lot I was having to do all the research I was having to do, you know, and then when, when an expense would arise, like, Hey, we've got to do some legal paperwork. It was like, there was no jump on their part to be like, okay, I'll take care of this. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's not openly asking for money that turns people off. A lot of times, I think it's more that if you are a donor, you expect that the person who is on the receiving end is going to be burdening the cost of the donation, right? Like for example, uh, if there's any testing, like a lot of times you have to do like follow-up STD testing to be able to, you know, ensure that there's no, there's no issue with the embryo and, and that's a cost, right? Even if you have insurance, it's still a cost. And then, you know, the transferring of that, or like at the point that you reach an agreement, the storage fees henceforth should be on the recipient. And so I think that sometimes will shock people. So when I was considering becoming um, a recipient, and when I reached out to Abby, I asked Abby specific questions, like what should I expect to pay out of pocket? And I think that there are some things that you do pay out of pocket, because there are legal fees involved in the transfer of embryos, there's transportation fees, there's storage fees, there are testing fees that are involved, there are fees 
for the fertility clinic um, based on what their requirements are. And so that's kind of how I broke it down in my head. And I think that these fees go unspoken when you have an altruistic donor and someone who is hoping to be a recipient. And so you had this conversation, you're like, you know, we have, we have, I have these extra, you know, embryos, I want to donate them to you. And people hear donation, they think it's 100% free. And you're, you're not exactly paying for the embryo, but you're paying for everything around that embryo. So we have to talk to a lawyer. Each party should have a lawyer, right? And who pays for that? It's the person who is hoping to receive that donation, right? Mm -hmm. From the point where you decide, okay, this is my person as a donor, then it is the recipient who's like, okay, so I'm going to, you know, take over storage, you know, I'm going to transport the embryos to my fertility clinic. So there is a lot that's involved from the point where you decide I'm going to accept these embryos to the point where you get to transferring that embryo into your uterus. And I think that that's the part that's kind of the gray area that people are not fully prepared for. Yeah. So for us, um, I mean, luckily, Johanna graciously offered to pay for everything. So I believe the attorney was $750 for each of us, and she paid for both of those. She didn't pay the storage fees because I had four embryos and we only shipped two at a time, but she paid for the transportation of the embryos. And when she was successful on her first attempt, she then paid to ship the remaining embryo back to me. She would have paid for a counseling session, but the counselor I had seen was actually, we had, I, I was a healthcare provider for her son. And so she graciously donated the session. I don't even remember if that was required, but many clinics would mm -hmm. require a counseling session. So I would expect that the recipient would pay for that. But I think when you consider the costs of basically, it's just a frozen embryo trans, uh, transfer. I don't remember, but I'm going to guess that's under $5,000 exactly. It's so much cheaper than doing a full IVF yeah, cycle. Yes. Um, <laughs> It's, you know, yeah. medically a pretty simple procedure. It's interesting because I, you know, I hear, we hear a lot about people that are just like, oh my gosh, sperm is so expensive. Right. And so I think people make the assumption, they don't realize all the costs that the, that the fertility banks pay or all that's included in this cost. Right. So when you go to do something like embryo donation and the, some of those costs pop up again, right? Because, uh, for example, the legal costs, the, 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 the sperm bank takes care of that, right? They they do all the legal stuff to make sure that there's not going to be a child support situation or like some donor is going to come after you for custody, right? They also do some of the health, you know, all the health screenings and things. But when you're doing a private donation of embryos, that cost doesn't go away. Like you still have those costs. It's just that you're you're doing it outside of a fertility clinic. And so uh, I think that's where these pop up. So my next question is around any concerns that you had when you first started donating. And I ask because I really had a lot of like feelings and I feel like it's been sort of a journey with like, what would I want a relationship to look like? And I, you know, I've had conversations with my own kids about the difference between, you know, their donor siblings, because they have like about 12 to 15 of them now. And so they are familiar with the concept and have met many of them. And so I'm trying to kind of wrap my head around, does that look different for full genetic siblings or 
how would that, how, how would I navigate that relationship? And even also like my own feelings about a child that is not mine, that is going to be potentially sharing half of my DNA. So how is that for you? Yeah. So I was definitely, I was nervous about how I would feel, you know, having this full genetic sibling. And so because the embryos had been um, PGS tested ahead of time, I requested Johanna, like, would she be comfortable with trying the male embryos first? Because I have two girls and she said, yes. And so I, I imagined that that would make it a little bit easier for me than if it was a little girl. And I, why, why is that? I just, I just imagined that they would feel the baby would feel a little bit more distant to me because I had never had the experience of parenting a son. Okay. Um, so I was really nervous. She very graciously offered to let us come visit while she was still in the hospital. So the baby was 24 hours old. Calliope and I made the drive up. Um, she was in, she was upstate a few hours away and it was such a relief to me when I met him, like this baby is so beautiful and it is not my baby. This is somebody (laughs) else's baby. So that was a huge relief. I, I feel towards him sort of like I do towards my nephews. Like I love him automatically and instinctively, but I don't feel any instinct to parent him. And the older he gets, the less I feel that. And did that take work? So like while, while you're, while Johanna was, was pregnant, were you kind of processing your feelings all along the way? Um, Did you do some self-work to get to that point? I think I did. I think I did a lot of it ahead of time. I had always had the plan to donate embryos because I felt super lucky that I had been so successful with IVF. So, but yeah, I think I was thinking about it and imagining it while she was pregnant. I felt very invested in her pregnancy mm-hmm. succeeding. And it was, it was really fun to get to see her while she was pregnant, but it ended up being a lot easier than I feared. Um, yeah, once I met him, it was like, this is so great. I'm so happy we did this. She's so happy. He's so beautiful. Like it just, it felt much easier than I expected. Nice. Nice. Yeah. It, it is um, so sweet to want to pay it for it. Like I don't have anything that I can donate, but I have been donating blood because, you know, <laughs> I think once you're in the path of thinking of it as a tissue donation and you think like, how can I pay this forward at a time where I'm able to? And it's like, so I've been starting this year, you know, I've donated twice and, you know, they keep, every time I get the emails, I respond because, you know, I'm starting to get emotional because it's such a gift when you're unable to create that thing that you, you so desperately want or need in the case of blood and to have someone graciously, you know, give you that gift is just, wow. So you talked a little bit about meeting little guy for the first time. Can you talk more about what the relationship is like? Is it working as you envisioned or, or has that, you know, changed and evolved over time? Yeah, definitely. Um, I just wanted to make one comment on what you just said about the gift um, that I think maybe a thing people don't realize is that when you're giving this gift, you're not only giving it to the other person, you're giving it to yourself. You know, it's a gift to me to get to see this little boy growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel really grateful for the experience also. With with mom and little guy, you know, mm-hmm. is it what you envision? Is it what you anticipated kind of going into this? Yeah. So I'll call him um, Sean, not his real name. I think 
I would I hoped that we would get to see him more often when we when the transfer took place she Johanna was living in Seattle and I was in Brooklyn and then I chose to move my family to Mexico she moved to upstate New York so we actually mm-hmm. could have seen each other more but I I was the one that moved away so and then we had covid so we didn't go back to the states one summer but um last summer we spent a long, a long weekend with them. And I think we will this summer as well. So that's really lovely. It's honestly like so much easier than I would have anticipated. I think one thing that's really interesting about his relationship with my kids is they're significantly older. He's four and they're seven and 10. And so around the time that he was born, Calliope said, oh, he's my brother. And I was really taken aback by that. I would have not have used those words. I don't really like using brother and sister for donor half siblings, even then. And obviously donor sibling, like they are full siblings, but I, for me personally, I think children who are raised together in the same home are brother and sister or siblings. But Mm -hmm. I realize, like, I don't get to define that this is theirs and Mm -hmm. he's going to grow up with these older bio siblings who are so much ahead of him developmentally that they're going to be calling the shots in terms of what they call him. And of course Mm -hmm. he doesn't have to use those words, but I didn't really anticipate that. And I think recently my younger daughter, she, she told my partner, she said, "Um, you're not my, you're not my donor. So you're not my real dad. Oh, and she just put that together for the first time as well. So around the same age as Calliope did. And so I think it's like, oh, wow, like these kids get to decide how they define things. So do they do they refer to their full biological sibling as a brother, but not the donors, the, the, the half siblings? So I don't really think they refer to him as a brother. They just... Calliope just realized, like she put it together. Okay, got it. Oh, he's my brother. And probably if they were together with him, they might tell someone else, this is my brother. But I think it's more like they're kind of showing off than they think of him as a full sibling in the way that they think of each other. Interesting. So here's another question I have. What do you, how, how do you refer to the little boy and, and how would he refer to you? That is such a good question. I don't know how he refers to me. He is still fairly little, you know, just turned four. So I'm not sure. We originally talked about calling them super cousins. I liked the idea of sort of making up our own label, Um, but the kids haven't really latched onto that. So I probably usually, I don't have a good label, something like their donor sibling, but I recognize that's like not totally clear because a lot of people refer to yeah. donor half siblings mm-hmm. as donor siblings. So I think we're still navigating that. Interesting. So I love, I love like the idea of letting the kids define the relationship the way that they want, because I think that, you know, I think there's something to be said for your original sentiment of like, I thought this was about me, but then I realized it was about them yeah. because realistically at the end of the day, you know, my kids share something with each other that they don't necessarily share with me. And I think that they would share with these donor siblings or these embryo siblings, something that they would, that that would just be their relationship. And it wouldn't be anything having to do with my relationship. So (laughs) Abby, 
how would you want Sean to refer to you in an ideal world? You know, if you, how would you want him to refer to you? I honestly don't care. Like if he wants to call me an auntie or the donor or a friend, it, it doesn't matter to me. I think what matters to me at this point is really like honoring his relationship with my kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think so much of this is uncharted territory. It is both exciting and terrifying at the same time, because we are at the point where we're making decisions for, for, for these children who will be future adults. And, and at some point we become sidelined by the decisions that they make for their lives and have to be okay with whatever they decide to do. And so it is, almost an evolution of the adults in this situation, as well as for the kids as they they become adept at defining, you know, boundaries and titles and names and relationships for themselves. So I think it is fascinating. So I have a a question about, you know, there's lots of women who are going to be listening to this on on both sides, right? Some women that are considering donations, some women who are uh, considering being the recipient of the donation. What advice do you have for them on like how to sort of enter into this situation? I think the biggest thing for me is just make sure that you're really on the same page emotionally with the other adult in the, in the potential agreement. I think if your values are aligned, then hopefully you can work out all of the logistics. Yeah. I think that's so important. What you said earlier about finding someone that even though you weren't you know, friends with this person, you had a somewhat common history and you had friends in common and you also had um, like spiritual values in common. And so I think that could potentially reduce some of the friction as the children get older, because I know that even with half siblings, donor siblings, there are, while I, while for the most part, I, you know, I'm happy to foster the relationship. There have been perhaps one or two where there's some questionable behavior from their parents that makes me a little bit nervous about the relationship. And I definitely wouldn't want that to occur with a full biological sibling. Bring up a really important point, which is I feel super protective of these embryos Mm -hmm. because right now while they're frozen, they're still my children. And exactly like, yes, it's, that's, Mm -hmm. that's the hard thing. It's like that, that moment where you have to sort of in some ways, divorce yourself from the idea that these are your kids because they're not. When you donate them, the moment that you donate, they are not yours. Yeah. And I, and I will say, Abby, that I do love the, the thought process of once these kids make their way into the world, right, then it stops being about the adults, really. And it starts to be about the kids. And how do you create that environment for the kids to foster whatever relationship they're going to have? And so I thank you for for your candor. I thank you for and I know it's got to be like emotional to kind of go back there and bring it back forward and then, you know, think about sidelining, you know, for the kids. And so I do appreciate you coming here today and joining us in this conversation. Before we let you go, we wanted to know a little bit more about Peaceful Parent Sleep Coaching. So could you tell us a little bit more about your business and how you are partnering with SMC families and coupled families to kind of get them through a critical moment in their parenting? which is sleep training, sleep coaching their kids. 
Yeah, thank you. Well, first, thank you for inviting me onto the show. It's a real honor. Yeah, so my background, I was a neonatal ICU nurse for a couple of years and then a pediatric nurse practitioner in Brooklyn for 13 years. And then when I moved to Mexico, they don't have nurse practitioners here. And I thought back to my experience of needing to sleep train my own kids and how incredibly stressful that was, especially with my oldest. It was really scary. But then when I did it, it ended up being this really empowering experience because they were so much happier when they were getting the sleep that they they need. So that kind of inspired me to get certified three years ago as a sleep consultant. And so now, yeah, I work with families of young children, both single parents and coupled to help them get their kids sleeping through the night. Because I truly believe that families are so much happier when they're getting the sleep that they need. Um, I love working with SMCs. I'm generally very close communication with them while they're going through the, the process. I'm actually One family I'm working with right now is an SMC and her daughter needed to go to the hospital briefly. And I was able to be there with her providing emotional support, which was really, I I hope it was helpful for her. I think so. It was also really nice for me because I could imagine how stressful that would be and what it was like, even as a healthcare provider, when my kids were sick, especially my oldest, when she was a baby, how stressful it was, um, So it's really special for me to get to work with families in this really vulnerable time in their lives and hopefully help them make their lives even better. Wow, that's great. So thank you so much for sharing your company with us and also uh, your experience with embryo donation. I I might be calling you because my three-year-old is still having struggles with sleep training. So (laughs) I feel like I could definitely use peaceful parents sleep coaching myself and my family. Well, thanks again for joining us. And Pod, please follow us on Instagram at MochaSMC. And also keep listening to us and share with your friends and family. Have a good one, everyone. Well, Pod. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. If you like what you heard, share us with your girlfriends. We'd love to hear your thoughts. So tell us what you thought of this episode on social media. On Facebook, we are at Mocha SMC Podcast. And on Twitter and Instagram, we are at Mocha SMC. You can find additional information on the topics from the podcast at our website at mochasmc.com. Till next time, pod. Bye now.